0: And you can open your Bible to James chapter 1. So as Doke mentioned a few weeks ago, um, prior to his surgery, um, he mentioned that I'm going to start walking through the book of James during the times throughout the year um, that I preach in his absence. And so today we're going to start our journey through that book. I don't know how long it's going to take, but I'm not in a hurry. Um, today we're going through the first four verses. Um, I taught the book of James, I, I love the book of James, I taught it um, when we were living in Wales, we, we kind of ran a Sunday evening service geared towards 18 to 25 year olds, kind of college age students, young professionals, and uh, we covered the book of James in five weeks, um, one chapter a week, um, and that was very much just a, it wasn't even a scratch of the surface, not even close, um, but just an introductory um, to the book, but um, this time, I'm really looking forward to, and I've enjoyed these last couple of weeks of really digging into this and, and getting to, to slow down and see what depth there is in this book. And so, um, before we get to the text, I want to start with some introduction and some background. Uh, I want to look at the background of the author, um, the audience, and then the reason for the letter. And so, let's start with, who is James? James. The book itself gives us no indication other than his name is James. James is, um, comes from the Hebrew word for Jacob, and so actually in some older translations, you'll actually see this book is called the book of Jacob. Um, the author, I'm going to tell you right off the bat who I believe the author to be, and I believe it to be uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus. Um, he was a known leader in the Jerusalem church. Um, but there are three other people that are mentioned in the New Testament who are called James, and I think it's, it's right to at least mention them. Um, the, the, the one that you likely think the most of is probably James the Apostle. Um, he was the son of Zebedee, uh, the brother of John, um, one of the disciples, and one of the, the inner three. So he was part of the James, um, Peter, James, and John group um, who spent some significant time with Jesus. Um, There's also another James who's one of the twelve disciples also. His name is James the son of Alphaeus. Uh, We know very little about him. His name shows up in the lists of the disciples that you find in the Gospels, but other than that we know uh, virtually nothing. Um, Then there's a third James who he's also connected to the disciples, uh, but he's the father of one of them. He's the father of Judas. Not Judas Iscariot. There's another Judas who's part of the Twelve, and, and this James was his father. And again, we know very little about him. Um, because the opening of the letter doesn't say anything more than James, I think it is safe to assume that the writer would have been someone who was well-known. Um, James is a very common name in that day, so in all likelihood, this is someone that was well-known um, And thus, there are no other identifying factors that are really necessary. Um, So I think because of this, we can rule out James, the son of Alphaeus. We can rule out James, the father of Judas, with fairly reasonable certainty because um, they're both considered to be too obscure to have written the letter. Now, there are some who believe that the letter may have been written by James, the apostle. um, But the dating of the letter, I think, poses some issues for that. Um, we know from Acts chapter 12 that James the Apostle was put to death by the sword by Herod Agrippa around AD 44. Um, some place the writing of this particular letter as late as AD 60. Most people would place it um, kind of in the late AD 40s. Um, so I think either way, you'd have to rule out James the Apostle as a potential author um, because, um, because of the dating of the letter. A date um, in uh, dating of the letter in the eighty late eighty forties would make it the earliest book, the earliest New Testament book to be written. So let's look a bit more at what we know about James. Um, we know from accounts in Matthew thirteen as well as in Mark chapter six that Jesus had four brothers. They're mentioned there by name. James mentioned first, meaning that he was probably the oldest. Um, we know um, also from John chapter 7, verse 5, that his brothers did not believe in him. Um, as he began his ministry, they did not believe um, in him. And there's no evidence that they believed in him or followed him until after the resurrection. Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, singles out James in a list of people that Jesus revealed himself to after his resurrection. He mentions... Uh, he mentioned the, the disciples, he mentions a large group of 500, um, but he mentions James by name in that list. Um, Acts one fourteen tells us that Jesus' mother and his brothers were among the 120 people um, who were gathered in the upper room awaiting the promised uh, coming of the Holy Spirit. It seems evident that James and his other brothers became believers after the resurrection of Jesus, Um, If indeed this is James, the the brother of Jesus, um, which I believe it is, Um, you also have the book of Jude, which was written by another brother um, of Jesus. Um, He identifies himself in the book of Jude as the brother of James. Um, As time went on, James took a prominent role in the leadership of the Jerusalem church. And in fact, most uh, scholars believe that he was the leader or the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Further evidence of his leadership can be found in Acts chapter 12, um, verse 17. This is following Peter's arrest and imprisonment. Um, he you remember, remember the story. He was put into prison, and miraculously that night, the, the gates flew open, and, and he walked out past the guards and everything else, and um, quite a remarkable um, rescue. And from there, Peter goes to the house of Mary, and he tells the people gathered there what's just happened to him. Um, And in verse 17, um, it says this. It says, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Um, So James had a, he was important. He had a prominent role. Um, Obviously, Peter knew him well, wanted him to know um, what was going on in his life. Um, In Acts chapter 15, we have the account of the Jerusalem council. Um, Some had been teaching that Gentiles must be circumcised in order to be saved before they could be saved. Um, And Paul and Barnabas had been sent um, to Jerusalem to question these teachings and ask about it. Um, And they had this council. They had this meeting there in Jerusalem, um, and James was a big part of it. Um, Out of that meeting came the agreement that this was not the case. Um, They were not to place that um, parameter on on the Gentiles because it was not biblical. Um, James um, had a prominent role in this council, and in all likelihood, He himself crafted the letter that was sent to the Gentiles, um, the Gentile believers, to correct this teaching. Um, In fact, the letter from the Jerusalem Council is further evidence that James did, I think, in fact, write the book of James because they share similarities in the way that they are written. The New Testament pictures James as a committed Jew uh, who recognized Jesus as Messiah and Lord and showed spiritual sensitivity to the working of God. The end of James chapter 5 shows us that he was a man of prayer. Church tradition tells us that James spent so much time in prayer that his knees became as hard as those of a camel. That, I think, in itself is a very humbling thought. um, To think of spending that much time um, on your knees in prayer that your knees become so calloused uh, that they would be described as the knees of a camel. James's audience, let's talk about that for a second. The letter is addressed to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. It was written predominantly to Jewish Christians who had likely um, been associated in some way with the church in Jerusalem. Um, Several times throughout the book, James refers to the people that he's writing to as my beloved brothers, my brothers, my beloved brothers, quite a few times, Um, which indicates that there was a personal relationship with the people that he was writing to. He was not just simply writing this letter to a a general or generic group of people, but there was a personal connection there, um, which suggests that these were perhaps members of his church who had fled Jerusalem. Um, These believers had been scattered during a time of persecution following the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, as well as the death of James uh, the Apostle and Peter's imprisonment in Acts chapter 12. This persecution is probably the reason why James introduces the theme of trials and suffering from the beginning of his letter. Now some interesting things to note about the book of James. Um, being written to a Jewish audience, it, the letter itself is very Jewish in nature. Um, One example of this can be found in James chapter 2, verse 2. It says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, that word there assembly in the Greek is the is the Greek word for synagogue. Um, It seems from this that Jewish Christians were either calling the place where they were meeting a synagogue, or they were meeting in the local synagogues in their town. Um, Further to this, James contains more than forty different allusions to the Old Testament. Uh, It reads very much like a book of Christian Proverbs um, and resembles some of the Hebrew wisdom literature that you find in the Old Testament, particularly the book of Proverbs. Um, There are also very distinct parallels between uh, James and the teachings of Jesus, um, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. We find over 20 parallels to the Sermon on the Mount um, from Matthew 5 through 7 in the book of James, and we'll touch on these as as we work our way through the letter. Um, one other interesting thing is that James is very fond of commands. Okay, he, he hits these hard right off the bat. Um, we find 50 different commands in this book, and there's only 108 verses in it. Um, so he's, he's hitting us hard with these commands, and you're going to see that as we go. So why did he write the letter? Um, James focuses his letter on how faith is to be expressed in a believer's life. It's a reminder that our faith is also a way of life, and it's a guide to putting our faith into practice. He wrote this book to challenge the way that we live. The letter doesn't contain uh, new theological information, although there is plenty of theology within it. Um, It doesn't address specific problems um, in, in in a particular local church like many of Paul's letters do. It's a summary of wise teachings for any and every community of Jesus followers, including us here at LifePoint. It's a series of teachings that call God's people to wholehearted devotion to the way of Jesus. James doesn't mince words in his letter, Um, he doesn't beat around the bush. Uh, In fact, one author described the letter as a, quote, beautifully crafted punch in the gut. For those who want to follow Jesus, unquote. in a blunt and compelling way, Jesus, uh, sc- excuse me, James speaks about the lifestyle appropriate to those who know Jesus. With that introduction, let's dive in. Um, we're going to read the first four verses, so if you have your Bibles, would you follow along with me? It says "James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ." To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Father God, as we dive into your word today, as we look at these first few verses of the book of James As I prayed earlier, God, would you give us ears to hear? Would you stir our hearts to want to know you more, to want to live life more for you? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O God, my rock and my redeemer. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so let's start walking through this kind of word by word, phrase by phrase. James, we've already talked about him. He's the half-brother of Jesus, um, the leader of the Jerusalem church. But he describes himself here as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The term servant, um, you've heard Doke talk about it recently in Peter. Uh, it's the Greek word doulos, which means bond servant or slave. Um, it's this, Peter uses it in Second Peter and here, James, like Peter and Paul as well, is he's taking seriously, I believe, the teaching of Jesus to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. There's no wiggle room in that statement made by Christ. There just simply is none. Paul himself said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is, not, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We are to to lay our lives down at the feet of Jesus and follow him wholeheartedly. If we claim to follow him, our lives must show it and demonstrate it. And that is what James seems to be passionate about throughout this letter. I think the first four verses here set the stage for the rest of the letter and we'll explore that in a minute. It's interesting to me to note here The humility of James both in what he says and what he doesn't say what he says is he calls himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and yet in that same breath he makes no reference to himself as Jesus's brother he doesn't play the brother card he doesn't use that status to try to gain any kind of recognition I feel like had I written this letter I'd have been a bit tempted to throw that in there you know that's a significant thing. Um, yeah, he doesn't do that. He recognizes Jesus as his Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a reverence here in that. the The word Lord there is the Greek word kurios, which means uh, supreme in authority. So he's recognizing his brother as supreme in authority. He is Lord. He's also the Christ. He he recognizes Jesus as the Messiah as christos the anointed one and then james addresses the letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion or the 12 tribes scattered among the nations we've discussed that group of people already james then then simply says greetings now in my study of of this passage this week this was one of the most interesting things that i noticed um this is not a term of, it's not a, a saying, hello, how are you, um, howdy. It's nothing like that. It it's actually comes from the Greek word kairo, uh, and it means rejoice. It's a verbal command here. So kind of the first command that we see, um, the verbal command here to be cheerful, to rejoice. The same word is used several times in the New Testament, and I'll go through a, a few of those for you because I think they're interesting to point out. In Luke chapter 1, verse 28, the angel Gabriel comes to visit Mary. um, And he says to her, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Same word there. Rejoice, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Matthew 28, verse 9, the resurrection account. um, Jesus appears to the women who have come to the tomb. They're on their way back to see the disciples, to tell them what has happened. And he says to them, he shows himself to them and he says, greetings, greetings. It's the same word, rejoice. Um, when Paul encourages the church at Philippi to rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice. It's the same word there. But the most interesting and quite honestly disturbing use of the word that I found was in the account of Judas's betrayal of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, 49 says this, and he, meaning Judas, came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. It's the same word. I, I didn't know what to make of that. I still don't know what to make of that. Um, why use that word? There, there are other words that he could have used to greet Jesus in that moment. What was it that Judas had no earthly clue what was about to happen? I don't know, but I just found it to be a, a odd. Kind of left me dumbfounded a bit. Um, anyway, I'll move on. I just found that to be interesting. Um, almost all of the other New Testament letters begin with a greeting of grace and peace. You see this in a lot of Paul's writings, some of the other letter writers. Grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ or something similar to that. None of them begin with a greeting like this. Now, remember who James is writing to, okay? He's writing to Jewish believers, to Jewish Christians who have been and are probably still living under severe persecution. And he's telling them here to rejoice. And there's a reason for it, and that's what he's about to get to. So let's take a look, moving on into verse 2. Count it all joy. James tells the believers here to choose joy. Considerate joy is what some translations say. Now we all know, we would all agree that rejoicing in the midst of a trial is not a natural human response. We don't we don't do that in and of ourselves. As a believer, we have to make a conscious choice to face our trials with joy. Paul in his letter to the Philippians has a theme of rejoicing. I read part of it earlier. In Philippians 3.1, he adds a key phrase to that, Rejoice in the Lord. This shows where the believer's joy exists. The joy that both Paul and James speak of is unrelated to the circumstances of life. It's related to an unchanging relationship with the Sovereign Lord. The ability to count it all joy in the midst of trials, in the midst of the trials of life, Does not come from within us it just simply doesn't it comes from our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ in 2nd Corinthians uh, Chapter 8 Paul tells the church at Corinth about the church in Macedonia He says we want you to know brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now Macedonia was a very impoverished region of the Roman Empire. It had been ravaged by many wars over the years. It had been plundered extensively and severely by the Romans. And yet in the midst of this severe affliction, which by the way Paul calls a test, There is an abundance of joy among the believers. So, not only do they have joy, they've got a surplus of it. It's overflowing from them. And Paul attributes this to the grace of God that has been given to them. As believers, our joy comes from the Lord. And so, James says to count it all joy, brothers and sisters. This is a message for all believers. He's writing to believers. We must count it all joy. He goes on to say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now notice what he doesn't say here. He doesn't say if. He says when. When you meet trials of various kinds. James is operating under the assumption that trials will come. It's simply a matter of when. The believers to whom he is writing have already experienced trials in the persecutions that they've faced, which have forced many to flee Jerusalem. And many, if not most, are still living through this trial. The Greek word that James uses here is the word parasmos, uh, and it means putting to the test trials of one's character, proof it carries with it the idea of something that breaks the pattern of peace, comfort, joy, and happiness in someone's life. The verb form of this word means to put someone or something to the test with the purpose of discovering the person's nature or that thing's quality. Some other places in Scripture where this word is used are 1 Peter 1, 1.6. Where Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Luke twenty-two twenty-eight. Jesus is speaking to the disciples. And he says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Let me give you a couple of examples from life. Um, when we have flyers or door hangers or things like this, printed for publicity, um, I'll often design something and then submit it to the company that we use um, through their website. And as I submit that, I have the opportunity to ask for a proof. And that simply means that the company's going to look at what I've submitted to them. Um, They're going to make any adjustments that might be necessary to make sure it fits within their parameters, uh, that colors aren't off or whatever. Um, And then they're going to send it back to me to approve so it's a, it's a testing of sorts to make sure that I'm happy with the product. I'm happy with how it's, it's going to look. If I'm not happy at that point, then I have the ability then to send it back to them saying, no, we need to make this change, or I don't like the way this looks, this color's not right. Um, and that process goes back and forth until I am happy with how it looks, I've approved it, and I'm ready for it to go to print. Another example is the process that takes place in a courtroom. Uh, We call it a trial for a reason. A person is put on trial in order to test their character through questioning and submission of evidence that will prove or disprove the truth or genuineness of their testimony. There's one other thing I want to mention about what he says here. Because he says, when you meet trials of various kinds... As I was thinking about that this week, meeting trials has the idea or the notion of movement. And I'm moving towards them. So if I, if I schedule to have coffee with somebody tomorrow, uh, I have to go and meet them at the place where we're going to catch up. That requires movement, movement on my part. It qu- requires action. I'm moving towards that. In the same way, I think what James is getting at is that as Christ followers, we are called to move. We are called to action. We are not called to sequester ourselves in a compound or move up onto a mountaintop and live our lives wrapped in bubble wrap, hoping that nothing bad is ever going to happen to us. It's simply not reality. That's not the life that Christ has called us to. We are called to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and we are called to follow him out into the world. And so what I see in this, James says, when you meet those trials, when, meaning they're coming, but when we meet them indicates that we're moving through life. We are moving through this life as Christ followers, and we will meet those trials. And what happens when we meet them is, That's what comes with the rest of this, what I'll get to in a minute. But we will meet those trials as they come. And they come in all shapes and sizes. We know that. You know that. You lose your job. You get a diagnosis. Your house burns down. Someone in your family passes away. These trials, these things come our way. It might be someone comes into your life that's just a difficult person. Those those things can be trials and testings in our life. That God puts there to test the genuineness of our faith. And that's what the book of James is all about. And that's what he's going to start with today. He, knows, he says, the test when you meet trials of various kinds, he goes on to say, um, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's our next point. James tells us that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. Our faith in God is put to the test to determine genuineness, and trustworthiness. (coughs) We do this with people in our own lives. Um, If we don't know someone well, we'll often put them to a test, maybe in in little subtle ways, to determine if we can trust them, if they're genuine. How much information can I share with this person at this particular point in time? Um, When Charity decided to go back to teaching, Um, This year, she was interviewed by a panel of teachers and school administration to talk about her background, her experience, her teaching philosophies, etc. But then they put her to the test. They had her come in and then she had to teach a 45-minute lesson to a class while they sat on the back row and observed. They tested her genuineness. They tested her trustworthiness. They didn't simply hire her based on what she said in an interview. They wanted to see her live it out. James is saying that God puts our faith to the test through the various trials that we meet in life. But this testing of our faith, he said, produces steadfastness. This word means patient endurance, constancy. And it also carries with it the idea of being able to bear up under something that's heavy. It's the same word that Peter uses in 2 Peter 1, in the ladder of virtues um, that Doke shared with us, you'll remember um, from a few weeks ago. The writer of Hebrews uses this term in Hebrews 12.1 when he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run with steadfastness. It's the same word there. Paul also uses this in Romans 5, 3-5, through 5, when he says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance or steadfastness. That endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the testing of our faith Results in steadfastness, the ability to stand up under trial and to rejoice. Trials develop our character. The process might be painful, but the product is worth it. The product is a mature faith. This is one of the unique things about faith. It shapes our perspective. It even lets us look at painful experiences in a new light. When we see trials from the perspective of Christian faith, we will truly be able to rejoice because we see the product that God intends to produce in us. I'm sure you've all heard stories, and maybe you have them as well, in your own life about people who have gone through difficult times, difficult struggles and trials, but who then look back on it and they're thankful for it because it helped to shape them and give them a greater perspective on life and a greater appreciation for things such as people, time, etc. Our trials help to shape us, and as James says, they develop perseverance. In all of this, we are to be joyful. This doesn't mean that we're happy, Um, but we take joy in knowing that there is a reason behind it all. And that God is sovereign and that he is using the situations that we find ourselves in to build character in us and to make us more and more into his image. And that brings us to kind of my final point today. Don't get too excited. Um, I'm going to drag it out a bit. Um, but my, my final point comes from verse 4. Let's read it together. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. Verse 4, James says that we are to let steadfastness have its full effect. The word full here is the Greek word um, teleos. It means completeness. And it carries the idea of wholeness and integrity. James is going to use this term seven times throughout his letter. And we'll see that as we go along. James is concerned, hear this, James is concerned with wholehearted devotion to Jesus, not half-hearted attempts at being Christ's followers. He wants to see believers, you and me, living a completely integrated life in which our actions are always, always consistent with the values and beliefs that we have learned from Jesus. Combined with the word that translates, that's translated effect here, um, which means work, act, or conduct, this phrase here means to finish its work. Um, you'll see that phrase used in other translations. Let steadfastness have its full effect. Let it finish its work. Let it grow you up and bring you to adulthood in the faith. James is telling his readers, it's time to grow up. The reason he gives is so that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James knows that most of us live as fractured people with large inconsistencies in our character. All of us are more compromised than we'd ever like to admit. But God is on a mission to restore fractured people and make them whole. Amen. Perfect here is not a reference to sinless perfection. It's a reference to spiritual maturity. Uh, Paul uses this in Colossians 4, verse 12, when he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. That word mature there is the same word spiritual maturity. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter, keep your hand in James, but turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 11 through 16. I want to read this together. Let's see what Paul says about this perfection, this maturity. Ephesians four eleven through 16. by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that that it builds itself up in love. That was Paul's kind of definition there of a mature believer, mature believers. Paul saying that we find unity through maturity. Spiritual growth leads to unity in the body. Jesus also uses this term in his explanation of the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8. He describes the seed that fell among thorns in this way. He says, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life and their fruit does not mature. As I start to come to a close, I want to share an article with you that I came across actually last night. Uh, I was literally about to turn out my light and go to sleep, um, but I had been kind of scrolling down on my phone through Twitter and came across an article um, from Christianity Today that I want to read to you. Um, it's written by Nick Ripkin, and if you've read the book or seen the movie The Insanity of God, um, you'll know who Nick Ripkin is. He and his wife have served as missionaries for years, going into very difficult parts of the world. And um, he's explored over his journeys kind of the persecution faced by believers and their response to it. Um, he's been to many places in the Horn of Africa, the Middle East, Asia, Russia, and more to hear the stories and to encourage believers there. And the editor's note on this article says this. It says, Ripkin." was a personal witness to much of the content below. For the events and words where the author was not present, great care has been taken to recapture and relay the words and events as exactly as possible. Everything expressed here was reprodu- reproduced excuse me, through eyewitnesses. So I want to read parts of this letter to you or this article. Nick says, I was working in Mogadishu, Somalia, when my wife called me on the shortwave radio about a meeting invitation. Ruth went on to say that I and one other Westerner had somehow been granted permission to sit among some of the giants of the faith in the world of Islamic persecution. These were men who represented generations of Christian leaders who lived among Muslims and were part of the faith family attempting to love Muslims in Jesus' name. The secret meeting was to be held in a remote part of Kenya. With just enough time to fly to Kenya, see my family there, and change clothes, I made it to the meeting. Being with these heroes of the faith throughout the Islamic world was humbling. Particularly impressive were some close friends from Iran, One pastor sitting next to me was asked to give a 15-minute testimony. He testified for over two hours. He talked about what God was doing in his country, especially since the Shah was kicked out of Iran and a conservative form of Shia Islam was installed. He bore witness eloquently and specifically. Believing that he was in a safe space, he shared feelings, dreams, and information that he dared not speak about outside this location. He shared such detailed information concerning faith and persecution within Iran that others around the table became concerned. They reached past me to pull on his uh, knee-length shirt, suggesting that he not be so forthcoming. I remember his words. This is the first time in years that I've been safe enough to speak like this. For once, I want to tell the truth, the whole truth. For the next few days, he and others opened a door concerning faith inside Islam that I did not know existed. Soon, I returned to Mogadishu. It was about two weeks later that Ruth called again on the shortwave radio. Her voice trembled as she informed me that Pastor H, the evangelist who, who had spoken so boldly at our meeting in Kenya, had disappeared His fellow believers in Iran were certain he had been taken by the security police and they feared for his life. In fact, they were deeply concerned that his arrest might be an indication that widespread persecution was again becoming reality. A couple of weeks later, an historic event took place at a church in Iran. Approximately 38 men and women from a Muslim background were ready for believer's baptism. The church was packed as much as security would would allow, with these new believers lined up from the altar down the aisle and all the way to the rear of the church. Now, within Islamic settings, Muslims equate baptism with salvation. Seekers from Islam investigating a relationship with Jesus Christ can explain away many of their activities. If they are discovered reading the Bible, for example, they can claim that they are studying it in order to debate Christians more diligently or more intelligently. If they are seen sneaking into a church building, they can excuse such behavior in the same way. If seen talking to a pastor or some Western Christian, seekers can suggest that they were simply observed witnessing lifting up the attributes of Islam. But they can't explain away baptism. There is no acceptable excuse. Muslims believe that at baptism, a person no longer belongs to Islam, but to Christianity. They have left one community and joined another. The local community says that when converts are baptized, they have left Muhammad and joined with Jesus. At baptism, persecution soars because identification with Jesus is real, irrevocable, and forever baptism is the point of no return inside the church's baptismal pool stood a leader from the secret meeting in kenya pastor h who had been missing for weeks now um, was his colleague and friend of many years as this preacher finished his message he began to prepare for baptism he looked surprised when he saw his wife approach such behavior was unusual and his concern grew as he saw the tears in her eyes She held held out his cell phone to him, and his heart sank when he heard the news from the caller. "'Pastor H is dead,' he relayed to the gathering. "'Your pastor is dead,' the leader continued. "'The man who loved you enough to tell you about Jesus, giving you the opportunity of eternal life, has been killed because of his faith. This is the cost of following Jesus.'" Now I want to know, he said, addressing the new believers, are you ready to be baptized? Now that you have witnessed the cost of following Jesus, are you ready to be buried with him in baptism and raised to your new life in Christ? There's a spiritual war taking place today, and Christians must choose to be on one side or the other. There's no middle ground. In the months following the martyrdom of Pastor H, we learned that he was betrayed by someone pretending to be a follower of Jesus. Those new believers in Iran, lined up and down the aisle of the church, awaiting baptism, were told, your pastor has been killed. Now that you know the cost, are you ready to follow Jesus through baptism and beyond? Not one person walked away. And so I believe that verse 4 in James' introduction to everything else that is coming. He's challenging believers to grow up into followers of Jesus who are perfect, that is mature, and complete, lacking in nothing. The following verses and chapters, he's going to show us how to do this. If we lack wisdom, ask for it. Be doers of the word and not just hearers only. Don't show partiality. Instead, love unconditionally. Demonstrate your faith by what you do. Tame your tongue. Don't get caught up in worldliness. Don't boast about your wealth. Be patient in suffering. Pray with faith. James is challenging believers. He's challenging us to be wholehearted, devoted followers of Jesus. And he's going to present a variety of tests that allow us to examine our own faith, to test its genuineness. So that's where we're headed. Be ready for the occasional, if not very frequent, punch in the gut. Um, James brings it, and he makes no apologies. Let's pray.